Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. We'll start our episode in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering. If you are an engineering business that could benefit from new materials and manufacturing processes, then SAMPI might be the ideal partner for you. SAMPI is the only technical society that provides enhanced educational opportunities, knowledge transfer, and professional engagement in all fields of materials and processes. To find out how SAMPI can provide your business with growth and educational opportunities, visit SAMPI's website at nasampi.org or consider attending one of SAMPI's conferences such as CAMEX, the largest and most comprehensive composites and advanced materials event for products, solutions, networking, and advanced industry thinking. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Today's episode features an in-depth look at the Perlan project. The mission of the Perlan project is to fly an engineless aircraft to the edge of space. Yes, you heard that right, engineless, meaning the aircraft needs to soar higher and higher like a glider. In this case, by taking advantage of an aerodynamic phenomenon known as wave lift. Not only is soaring to 90,000 feet an audacious goal, but on top of that, the Perland project is a worldwide collaborative project run entirely by aviation enthusiasts, scientists, engineers, and adventurous pilots. No one has ever soared to the edge of space in a glider, and so the Perland engineers are venturing into uncharted aviation territory on their own. On this episode of the Airspace Engineering Podcast, I speak to project manager Morgan Sandercock and flight test engineer Alan Lawless about the genesis and history of the Perlan project, how one goes about designing, manufacturing, and testing a glider that is to fly to the edge of space, past success stories, and the team's future plans for breaking aviation records. In case you personally want to support the Perlan project as a donor, you can do so at perlanproject.org forward slash donors. So let's dig right into the genesis of the Perlan project. How did the bold idea of soaring to the edge of space take hold? Project manager Morgan Sandercock retells the founding story of the Perlan project. So the project began with A.N.R. Renovoldson, who was a um, U.S. Air Force pilot, NASA test pilot. He was working as a test pilot in Germany in the 90s, and he came across a picture on a meteorologist's wall that showed evidence of wave activity in the stratosphere. And up until that time, all of the data that had been collected on mountain wave through gliders and other means predicted that the mountain wave would stop at the top of the troposphere. 
so that mountain wave was basically like any other weather that the thunderstorms don't go up into the stratosphere the the stratosphere is relatively calm low wind uh, not a lot of mixing between the layers of the stratosphere and this was totally new this was totally unexpected of wow something might be going on in the stratosphere and Anar's also a glider pilot so he looked at that and said hey maybe I can soar that wave We've probably all heard of thermals, pockets of rising warm air that gliders can use to soar higher and higher. But what exactly is wavelift? Morgan explains. Wavelift is much harder to visualize than most other forms of lift. Um, if you look at, um, say, the cliffs by the ocean on the beach and you see the seagulls flying in the uh, above the cliffs, you can pretty easily visualize. Yeah, there's wind blowing into the cliff can't go through the cliff so it gets pushed up to go over the top of the cliff and that push up is what the the seagulls are flying on hang gliders love flying that kind of lift kind of close to the ground and um, easy to predict easy to observe you just say is the wind blowing towards the cliff today yes it is okay there will be lift but that's limited in altitude you, you can normally go you know maybe twice the height of the cliff so if you've got a 100-foot cliff, you can go up to 200 feet. If you've got a 10,000-foot mountain, well, maybe you could entertain going to 15, 18,000 feet above the 10,000-foot mountain. But that's the limit for that kind of lift. Uh, thermals do generally go higher. Um, I've seen thermals myself over 20,000 feet in the US. But they're limited by the troposphere, by the clouds, um, by the energy available from the sun. Wave lift uh, was basically the last form of lift to be discovered by glider pilots. And it occurs in exactly the place you would expect everything to be going down. So imagine a, uh, a mountain range that is um, facing into the wind, as in the, the mountain range is across the wind. Wind's blowing straight up the slope of the mountain. Yes, there's, there's ridge lift coming up the slope. But on the back side of the mountain, initially the air starts going down. It starts flowing down the back of the mountain. But under the right conditions, the right conditions of wind and stability in the atmosphere, that air can bounce. It can descend kind of too far, and then the buoyancy of the air itself pushes it back up again. And you get what's called a standing wave, that a fixed distance behind the mountain, the air... <clears throat> that's gone down is coming up again. So we're doing all of our flying, basically facing in the wind. We're flying straight into the wind, looking at the mountain in front of us. And you can see that same kind of thing maybe in a shallow stream of water, um, you know, um, not, a, not a deep river, but a very, very shallow water, you know, maybe one inch deep flowing over pebbles um, in a stream or something. You can often see that the water will flow over a pebble and then downstream of that pebble, it's bounced up again, and it's a stationary wave. Even though the, the water is moving over the pebble very fast, the position of the wave isn't moving. Um, kayakers use this a lot sometimes in, in rivers where they can just park and wait, even in a, a very strong current. We're doing the same thing up in the air. It's just a lot more difficult to see because we can't see the air. And the unusual thing about the wave lift is it's able to propagate much higher than the mountain. 
with the right wind conditions, when you have increasing wind with altitude, as the each wave comes off the mountain, as each um, uh, cycle of the uh, the wind coming over the mountain pushes up another mountain ridge downwind of the mountain, they kind of stack up so that that disturbance in the air must disturb the air above it. And then that disturbance must disturb the air above that. And so long as there's more and more wind, so long as there's more energy getting injected up as the altitude climbs, then that system is stable and can go to extremely high altitude. So that comes back to the stratosphere again, that the stratosphere was previously thought to have no wind at all. All of the balloon measurements that scientists did sending up their balloons from the UK, from Africa, from anywhere, the balloon goes up into the stratosphere and just kind of floats along for a while. The difference is the polar vortex, this high altitude wind system that only occurs in the wintertime at each pole is that is actually a circulation in the stratosphere. And that is exactly the right wind profile we need to push the wave up higher. Einar Enevoldsen wants to soar this wave into the stratosphere, but to do that, he needs the right conditions and the right glider. So he goes off on a mission to find some funding for the project. There'd been proposals, you know, as far back as the 1950s for high altitude um, gliders. And None of that had happened because no one had actually put the dollars together to, to fund that kind of project. And he was eventually introduced to Steve Fawcett, who at the time was setting world records in balloons and round-the-world sailing and um, all sorts of things. Steve was a guy that just loved um, loved setting records in every single different possible sport he could get to. It started out as just one more record for Steve, one more category that he could claim a world record. He applied a lot of um, a lot of good thinking to to Einar's dreams to say, well, well, hold on a second, let's let's not spend large amounts of money building a glider for something that we don't really know exists. Let's let's start with something cheaper. Let's start with a stage one and go and prove that this this wave does exist. Prove that you can get to the stratosphere. He and Einar together purchased a, um, a, a motor glider, pulled the engine out, um, replaced the engine with an oxygen system, set it up for pressure suits, and campaigned that for many years in New Zealand. Um, the data was showing that the, um, the polar vortex that causes this high altitude wave in the, uh, in the stratosphere would you know, occasionally hit the southern edge of New Zealand and there'd be opportunities for soaring there. Never worked out, never got high in New Zealand. Uh, moved to Argentina, uh, found a nice little airport in the south end of Argentina called the uh, El Calafate, which um, is just about the perfect position in terms of the, the mountains nearby, and it's far enough south to reliably catch this polar vortex. It only occurs close to the poles, only occurs in the wintertime. Not immediately, but pretty much on the second attempt, Stephen Aynar um, went up to uh, just over 50,000 feet, set a new record. And as they're up there, um, shivering in cold, because it's incredibly cold at that altitude, Aynar said to Steve, can we build the stage two glider now? And Steve said, yes. 
Tragically, Steve Fawcett disappeared in September 2007 while flying a light aircraft over the Great Basin Desert between Nevada and California. The plane's wreckage was later found in the Sierra Nevada mountains. This tragic incident was not only the loss of a record-setting aviator and adventurer, but also meant that Einar Enevoldsen lacked the sufficient means to design and build the second version of the glider, the Perlan II. For a couple of years then, Einar had no money um, and no, no means of moving the project forwards. But he was giving presentations around the place and um, he was invited to come to Australia in um, September 2008. And I'd heard about the project through my you know, gliding friends and said, hey, have you, have you seen what's happening here? And and I kind of had this thought in the back of my mind that, you know, I want to go high. I want to see what's up there. So he presented where the design was up to and their successes so far and the data that really proved that uh, he and Steve had reached the stratosphere. It wasn't just a unusual day that the troposphere was high that day. And came up with a budget that um, was going to fund the completion of the Berlin 2 glider. And I looked at that and I said, well, I don't have that kind of money myself, but I could probably pay for half of it. I could probably get the fuselage built, and then we'll get some money from somewhere else. I think we can all agree that's spoken like a true aviation enthusiast. But how do you actually go about designing a glider that is supposed to soar into the stratosphere? A conventional thermaline glider has to do two things. It has to fly very slowly in the thermal to be able to fly a small circle inside the rising column of air. And it has to fly fast between the thermals. So the design of a conventional glider is always a compromise between those two points. We are kind of lucky that we are only climbing. We do not care about cross-country performance in terms of making distance. So the Perlant 2 was built as uh, a super floater. It's a very light wing loading. It's got a lot of square feet of wing and... Um, as you know, minimum possible weight we can build. It's still a heavy glider, but it's got that, um, that low wing loading by having a big wing. Um, a long wingspan always helps a glider. Long wingspan always gives you lower induced drag. That single point design helps in a lot, a lot of ways that we, we don't have to have it optimized for high speed. This is just for flying slow, for just pointing the nose into the wind and going straight up. Where it runs into trouble, though, is as the air gets thinner, um, we have to fly faster. We fly at basically the same indicated airspeed. So our, our gauge in the cockpit shows the same speed indicated, but in the thinner air, we're having to fly faster to whack into more air molecules and make up the difference for the, uh, the thinner air that we're flying in. So we fly at the same indicated airspeed, and that also means we're flying at about the same glide angle. When you're comparing different gliders together, you can compare their glide angle to say this one, if it's one mile up, it can glide 26 miles. And this other one, if it's one mile up, it can glide 60 miles. So we uh, generally, as, as a broad approximation, as we fly up higher, we're still flying at the same glide angle which means because we're flying forwards faster, we are descending faster. So our sink rate, as in the vertical 
drop of the glider through the air does increase as we climb up to altitude. That assumption breaks down at extremely high altitude because as the air gets thinner, the Reynolds number changes. The Reynolds number is a, a non-dimensional number that describes the viscosity and stickiness of the air relative to the size of your aircraft. You know, the reason why an Eagle's wing looks different to a 747 wing is the 747 is flying at a Reynolds number of 30 million or something, and the Eagle's flying at you know, 100,000 Reynolds number. And that actually means for us, we're flying slow in thin air we are flying at about the same Reynolds number as the Eagle. So it would be more efficient for us to have an Eagle wing instead of a 747 wing. And um, that Reynolds number limitation is what stops regular gliders from flying very high, um, as well as the, um, as well as the, uh, the pressurization problem, of course. Our wing is optimized for 60,000. We believe 60,000 is where we're going to spend most of our time searching and trying to crack up into the next level. Um, so that is what drives our, our restriction of 90,000. As we expect at 90,000, the predicted lift rate from the wave, from the air rising around us, will equal our sink rate. So 90,000 is where this design tops out the maximum possible on a good day. One of the other unique features of this glider is the um, life support system. Um, basically, um, we have to fly as if we are a spacecraft. We carry all of our own air and oxygen with us to fly. We're not dependent on outside air for anything. So we need an oxygen system which is able to run for long durations, and we need that um, oxygen system to, uh, to, to keep all of the moisture from people's breath off the windows because the windows are going to be extraordinarily cold, you know, minus 20, minus 40, and uh, what you breathe out has um, not just oxygen and carbon dioxide but also a lot of moisture. So the rebreather system is um, it's kind of halfway between an underwater rebreather and also we're using some components from rebreathers used in coal mines for underground rescues. And this allows us to keep all of the breathing gas contained within a closed loop. You breathe out um, air mixed with a little carbon dioxide and water. That goes through a scrubber that removes the carbon dioxide. And then we inject more oxygen, circulates back around, you breathe it back in again. So that gives us an extremely efficient usage of oxygen. The cabin is pressurized. Uh, the Perlan one used pressure suits that were borrowed from NASA. The pressure suits are just incredibly, incredibly complex and incredibly difficult to work with. Um, you've got to have a suit technician every single night strip the suit down and swab it out on the inside because you're flying inside a rubber bag, so all of your sweat accumulates inside the bag. The pressure cabin that was chosen for the Perlan 2 is basically enough that you could take off the rebreather mask and, re and breathe the cabin, but not for a long period. We're talking 15, 30 minutes. That's just pressurized with air. We, we have a scuba tank, basically. Um, it's a little more complex than that. And a computer system that I designed that monitors the... Um, 
pressure inside the cabin and adds and releases air as required so that we're able to um, control the pressure, uh, control the stress on the aircraft, and uh, we're able to keep the pilots alive. So with Morgan's backing and technical expertise, the initial design and testing of the Perlan 2 was completed. At this point, the Perlan project attracted the patronage of a trailblazer of commercial spaceflights. Uh, so I think it was early 2010, um, as the money I'd committed was, was starting to run down, um, we were contacted by Dennis Tito. Uh, Dennis Tito uh, is famous for being the first private astronaut. He's the first guy to pay for a ticket to the space station. He is a glider pilot. He's actually interested in flying in the wave. And he um, saw the Perlan project, saw that we, um, we needed some more money, and um, he came on board. And um, he committed enough money which was intended to finish the glider, although ultimately it didn't finish the glider. But uh, what we got uh, basically by about the end of 2012 was all of the parts were built. Every single gigantic piece of carbon fibre was, was built, ready to go, ready to assemble. Um, that took an enormous amount of work because you basically have to build the glider four times over. First, you come up with the, um, the theoretical model of the, the airfoil. Then you've got to translate that theoretical model into the real wings. You've got to stretch it out to fit the size of the wing, the wing tip, um, all of those little details, and build the whole thing in the computer so that we have a very large, heavy CAD model of the entire surface of the glider and all the ribs and brackets and everything inside of it. The internal details are um, also quite complex. Once we built that on the computer, then we can send it out to the um, computer-aided machining. That machines basically a big block of foam, very heavy, very rigid foam, and that foam is the shape of the glider, the outside skin, and the shape of all of the little ribs and everything inside. Each of them has their own block of foam. Once we've done that, then the... The computer cutter is, has got sharp edges on it. It makes little steps in the foam. So we've got to hand sand all of the foam. Hand sand all that foam? You heard that right. Morgan and his colleagues hand sanded a foam mold of the actual glider to provide the surface finish they needed to manufacture good quality carbon fiber parts. You know, we had a team of more than 20 people sanding for about six months. Just here's your piece of sandpaper. Push it this direction, don't push it that direction. You know, the, the direction that you sand was quite important. Myself and, um, and one of the guys, we worked on a tiny little detail just where the, the trailing edge of the wing joins into the fuselage. And we spent about two weeks sanding on this one little tiny area. It's probably about a square foot. Sanding on it, adjusting it. Um, it's the, one of the more complex parts that required hand finishing because the computer model couldn't really make that look good the way that you know as soon as you cut it into foam it's like mm, that's a bit wonky let's let's fill that patch there and sand this patch here so working with the chief engineer we um, we sanded on that and filled it and sanded it and filled it and sanded it for about two weeks finally we got the okay yep that's perfect okay now you get to do the left hand side a true labor of love 
Once the foam was ready, the Perlan engineers made a final mold by laying fiberglass over this foam plug. This finished fiberglass mold can now be used as a template to lay down the actual carbon fiber material that comprises the glider. This additional step of using fiberglass as the mold rather than the foam itself may seem like a complicated extra step, but it is crucial to be able to work with aerospace grade carbon fiber. The reason we don't directly mold off the foam is because all of this uh, process that we're using requires it to be cooked in an oven. The particular materials chosen is a prepreg carbon fiber, which is even stronger than regular carbon fiber. We used this particular one because it had been studied quite extensively uh, for aircraft and had been verified to work at very cold temperatures. Because we're looking at outside temperatures um, in Fahrenheit as low as minus 100. Pretty much dry ice temperature, which actually means it's easy for us to test a lot of these things, that we can just buy dry ice at the uh, local grocery store and we can test everything at minus 68C. So the, the prepreg material is then laid up on the mould, <clears throat> um, roll the mould into the oven, cook it in the oven at uh, 270 degrees for eight hours, and out comes the part. With the kit of parts ready and money running low, it was once again time to hit the fundraising trail. We had a marketing company involved that were going out looking for um, other potential donors, and uh, they knocked on the door of Airbus and basically the door fell in. Airbus said, come on in, we, we've heard of you guys. So uh, we were um, just totally impressed by that. And uh, Airbus uh, were able to, um, to give us um, enough money to finish the construction and just get us through uh, three years of expeditions to Argentina. And right now we're preparing for our third expedition. To run these expeditions, the Perland project doesn't just need capable aerospace and systems engineers. Alan Lawless, flight test engineer on the Perland project, takes us through how missions are planned and debriefed. The pilots, their job is, is primarily, of course, flying the airplane, having the, the pilot and command responsibilities. So, you know, talking on the radio and understanding the limitations of the airplane and keeping, you know, the, the airplane itself. And then the pilot opinion part of the test, okay? The pilot feels like, oh, the way the control, the flight controls feel are acceptable or not acceptable. Uh, the pilot feels that the, uh, you know, the radios are too scratchy to use. So he uses his pilot experience to say how good the airplane is, okay? Make, makes a lot of judgment calls. So it's subjective stuff. And we got the other end of the spectrum, which is the analysis side. We're responsible for that kind of thing. So together, as a team, we get both pieces of the picture. So first is the platform, okay, making sure the platform is safe uh, and just, just in the basic ability to fly. And then you start the envelope expansion of the platform. So like typically on a first flight of an airplane, you don't even retract the landing gear. You just take it up, you fly around, go do a couple circles, get some pictures, and land. And the next flight, all right, guys, this is the first time we're going to retract the gear. You're expanding the operation on the envelope. In our profession, there's a joke about there's the knowns, uh, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. It's like, we don't you know the first time you stall an airplane and take it up to high angle attack, we don't know what's going to happen, but we expect to be surprised. Okay, so that's a known unknown, right? But it's the stuff that you never saw coming. Nobody anticipated. That's the stuff that's really hard. 
And so a big part of our profession, both the FDEs and the pilots, is to, uh, first of all, try to use your imagination to anticipate anything that might go wrong and have a plan to, to minimize those problems. But you try to uh, use your experience to say, well, here's all the things that, that have gone wrong in the past. Uh, I'm using my imagination to try to think of anything else. And if you can wrap your head around all those things that have contingencies, uh, that's good because when something completely unexpected happens, you'll have the bandwidth to, to address it. The message about the Perlan is nobody is watching us. Nobody's telling us how to do it. We're strictly on our own to figure out how to get there. And we're trying to do it as smart and as safely as we can. We apply our usual principles, right? We, we build up and you try to think of anything that could go wrong so that you can say, um, well, we, we've got some confidence and now we're ready for the, for the next level. Morgan, too, echoes the sentiment that the glider's capabilities were expanded bit by bit, thereby gaining more and more confidence that the glider had been correctly designed to specification. You know, what flew on that first flight was uh, kind of a bare shell. We didn't have um, any of our electronics or um, life support systems on board. Um, <clears throat> so we had to get all of that finished. Uh, we had to do more tests on the airframe to verify that it did actually get built according to the design because it's one thing to design for this high altitude. The other thing is to prove, yes, that actual airframe as it's built does meet the design. One of the outcomes of that was we found that the, um, the flutter uh, that we thought we had completely designed out, turns out there's a couple of modes of flutter that are just just a little uncomfortably close to our normal flight envelope. Flutter is an unstable coupling between aerodynamics and wing stiffness, which can lead to uncontrolled vibrations of the wing. Alan Lawless has a nice explanation for the origin of flutter. The way I explain it to people is a dance. If the twisting and bending of the wing in the air happen at the same frequency, okay, they can drive each other crazy. And one can reinforce the other one. So instead of a little bit of wing bending, you get a lot of wing bending. And instead of a little twist, you get a lot of twist, and they aggravate each other until it all comes apart. So how do you actually go about measuring for these flutter modes in flight? The Perlan team came up with a unique way, especially suited to their needs. Talking to the, the company that did the, the flutter investigation for us, you know, well, how do you measure this? How do we go fly and do this testing? How do we send you the data so that you can verify that, um, yes, it really is as strong as we think? And they said that, well, normally a, a test flight program, you go up and fly a speed and an altitude, and you come back down and hand the, the memory card over to the engineers, and the engineers do the analysis. And then they say, yep, okay, you can go higher or you can go faster. And we go up and go higher and faster. But for us with the glider, where we might only get two or three days in a year that go to high altitude. We can't afford to abort a high altitude climb and come down just to download the data. And they said they had worked with one other customer where they had real-time flutter data transmitted from the aircraft down to their computers on the ground where they could analyze it. And then they could call the pilots on the radio and say, yep, fly higher and faster. But um, I, I looked at that and said, hey, I can do that. I can um, set up a telemetry radio and put the um, measurement units in the wingtips and 
send that data down while we're flying. That was a major project for me in 2015 to be able to, number one, measure the vibration in the wings, number two, to actually inject a known uh, amplitude of and a known frequency of, of vibrations into the wings, and number three, to send that down to the ground, and uh, number four, to actually let the pilots know what's going on. So not only can Perlan's flutter testing system measure the vibration modes in flight, but it can also activate them to force their aircraft to fly closer to the flutter limit. This allows for integrated flutter testing in real time at the simple push of a button. Flight test engineer Alan Lawless explains how this system works in detail. So we have a few accelerometers on the wingtip, and we have these little mass spinning masses that are uh, inside, and we can electronically set them up to spin at different speeds, either together or in opposite directions, to try to excite these motions of the airplane. And they're at pre-programmed speeds and, and uh, synchronizations to try to excite these modes to see if the frequencies are moving. Now, before we fly, we do a test to see, well, what are the frequencies when you're just sitting on the ground and there's no wind? That's your, your basic frequency. But when, you, when you're flying, the faster you go, the more it changes the frequency. And if they happen to come together to the same spot, boom, that's when you get flooded. So we're watching for that because that's bad. So on the, and there's different ways to excite these motions. And it's not just the wing. It's the vertical fin, it's the fuselage, there's bending, there's twisting, there's all kinds of possibilities. And if any two of them dance, it could be trouble. So we use these little spinning weights to excite certain modes, but also the pilot would do uh, what we call stick racks. So you just have the control stick and you whack a sharp input as fast as you can to try to get an impulse. And ideally, theoretically, an impulse excites all the frequencies. And then, so you excite the airplane, and then you see what frequency it settles at. So with much of the testing out of the way, what does the future for Perline 2 look like? When is it scheduled to fly the next record flight? Not in the immediate future. Uh, last year, September 3rd, we flew uh, just over 52,000 feet, which uh, set a new world record, broke the record of the Perline 1. Um, took us 11 years and four days to break that record. This year, we've uh, done some small upgrades to the aircraft. Um, we've done some big upgrades to our science instruments. We're getting more, more science on board. And we're expecting this year we might get somewhere in the 60 to 70,000 foot range. It's, um, we can't be very specific at this stage, but we think we have all of the systems, all of the equipment ready for something up to 70,000 feet. That's significant physiology physiologically because 63,000 feet is called the Armstrong line. That's the altitude where water at body temperature will boil. So above that point, that's where it gets really serious with the, uh, the life support systems. And of course, the Perline glider is not only used to break records. Ultimately, it will serve as a platform for scientific experiments. The primary instrument is the glider itself. We just get up there and we measure what the wind is and what the wave is. And that validates the global models, which are trying to predict weather around the world. And those models are influenced by this um, wave that's happening um, around Antarctica. But you know, a lot of that influence is just a fudge factor in the model. The, uh, the model designers have got no measurements in this part of the sky to to understand what's going on there. And once, once we've got this totally proven, once we're really 
certain, yep, we can do this, you know, pick a date, we'll do it 90,000 feet on that date, then, then the Perlan 2 becomes useful as a research platform. Then um, organisations, universities, uh, whatever, can come to us with science instruments and say, okay, we need this instrument at this altitude for this many hours. And that gives the glider a, um, a potential long career as a research aircraft. I believe that the Perlan project has a very bright future to look forward to. It is precisely audacious projects like these that push the boundaries of aviation technology and at the same time have the potential to inspire future generations of aerospace engineers. I hope you enjoyed learning about the Perlan project as much as I did. And if you want to learn more about the Perlan 2 glider, then you can find show notes with links to more in-depth material at aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then please consider leaving a review on Apple iTunes or wherever else you listen to this podcast. Share it on social media with your friends and family, or support it directly on Patreon, where patrons of this podcast receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. And with that, thank you very much for listening, and talk to you next time.